0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches the podcast from the Western Front Association with me Dr Tom Thorpe The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history society we are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide For more information visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com It is the 1st of March 2021 and this is episode 197 on today's programme, historian Professor Robert Grawath, Professor of Modern History at University College Dublin and Director of the Centre of War Studies at UCD, talks about his book on the 1918 November Revolution in Germany. This book is published by Oxford University Press. Robert spoke to me from his home in Dublin. Robert, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh,
1: Yes, of course. Um, I'm a historian of uh, early 20th century European history, particularly German history, and more generally history of war and violence. Uh, I'm originally from Berlin, Germany, and I moved to the uh, UK in 2000, I think, to do my PhD at Oxford. And then in uh, 2007, after also doing a postdoc there, uh, I moved to Dublin to take up my first permanent lecturing job, and I'm uh, still here in Dublin, now as a professor of modern history at University College Dublin. Um, I had previously worked on the interwar period, and then also on the Second World War, and was always interested in uh, where the total violence that we see, particularly on the uh, eastern front during that conflict, was, was coming from. Where's the starting point uh, to understand that eruption of existential ultraviolence, as I would call it. And moving to Dublin, I was fortunate enough to uh, be in a position to start having conversations with very well-known Dublin-based historians of the First World War, uh, such as John Horne and Alan Cramer, who had uh, spent a great deal of their career up to that point uh, thinking about the First World War. And then we did something what very few people actually uh, do. Historians of the First and the Second World War rarely kind of talk to each other. And uh, so there was a bit of a cluster here. And we started to have very interesting uh, conversations about how these two total wars uh, compare, what um, sets the them apart, etc., uh, etc., et and together with John, I then started a research project that uh, looked at how the Great War ended or didn't end in 1918, uh, because we generally like think about First World War as something that starts in 1914 and ends in 1918 quite neatly. But that's a very Western perspective, because for uh, much of uh, Eastern and Central Europe, uh, the war doesn't uh, end in 1918. There are revolutions, uh, there are civil wars, etc., uh, that really last until 1920. 19- three, killing at least, I would say, uh, four and a half million people. That's a very conservative estimate. Uh, So in other words, more uh, people than uh, British, French and American soldiers who died in the First World War. And that's kind of something that has, uh, I think, been uh, forgotten. And this project kind of led to publication of our jointly edited book, War and Peace, which was published by Oxford University Press, and then my own single author book, The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End, which was uh, published by Penguin. So um, I came to uh, the the First World War, to sum it up, uh, from the Second World War and sort of ask questions about how we can understand this kind of existential violence, which I think we can really trace back to the First World War in some cases, particularly on the Eastern Front and if we think of the Armenian Genocide, but also more specifically to these years between the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the Treaty of uh, Lausanne, the last of the uh, peace treaties at the end of the, the First World War, uh, which was concluded in
0: 1923. So why write a book on the 1918 1918- German Revolution? Well, I think it started with
1: me pondering more generally, as I just explained, how the First World War ended. And one of the things that I noted was that there were about 30 revolutions or violent uh, changes of power in this period. And very often, I think this has been ignored. People, of course, know about the Russian Revolution, but they don't know about what is generally considered the lesser uh, revolutions of uh, this period. And I think that the German Revolution, which is actually a very important uh, revolution because it transforms Germany. Germany from an imperial system to a a liberal democracy, arguably the most liberal uh, democracy of the time. And I think it's obviously the birth uh, date of democracy in Germany. And people very often tend to look at this revolution as a failed or half-hearted revolution because they uh, come to the subject from the vantage point of January 1933, uh, from the the moment that uh, Hitler is appointed Chancellor of Germany. And uh, because the Weimar Republic ultimately failed, it is generally assumed that 1918 is merely a stepping stone to uh, the Nazis' seizure of power. And I kind of uh, felt that this is um, a highly just uh, verdict, and that the revolution was actually, when you measure it against the objective of the revolutionaries, or at least many of the revolutionaries, it uh, was actually a successful revolution that established, as I said, Germany as a liberal democracy, uh, and also led to the introduction, for example, of voting rights for... Uh, women who had been disenfranchised up until that point, uh, and other important reforms, such as eight-hour working day. Um, So initially, this revolution is actually welcomed by a vast majority of Germany, the transition uh, to democracy. And so I'm kind of cautioning against uh, reading history backwards, which is, of course, something that we tell our students in uh, first year, in our very first seminars with them, never to read uh, history backwards. But for some reason, the uh, revolution of 1918 has been exempted from that one is kind of overshadowed by how uh, the Weimar Republic
0: ends. You've already touched on this um, already but how's the 1918 revolution seen in the broader historiography?
1: Yeah, as I said I think it is very uh, it is often seen through the uh, vantage point of 1933 the appointment of Hitler and because he eventually became uh, Chancellor of Germany and because of the, the horrors of the Third Reich and the Second World War many historians have uh, tried to think, perfectly understand have tried to trace the origin of the Nazi movement, which of course uh, is in many ways a product of First World War and the, um, uh, the, the German defeat. But at the same time it is worth bearing in mind that the Nazi movement was tiny up until the Great Depression of 1929. Uh, nobody could have predicted in 1928, before the Great Depression uh, starts, that Hitler would ever become uh, Chancellor of Germany. Um, so I think we need to resist the, that uh, urge to uh, read history back Backwards. We need to uh, avoid seeing it as a uh, failure, but also kind of uh, measure it against the uh, successes that the revolution had. Um, what is interesting is that up until this uh, present day, the, um, the the revolution is associated with the odium of treason uh, in some political camps. Of course, we uh, we all know the step in the back uh, legend, uh, which was spread by the German far right uh, immediately after the First World War and it was a very powerful narrative suggesting that the revolution had caused German defeat, and therefore the right associated the revolution uh, with treason. At the same time, a similar accusation, uh, but coming from a very different direction, uh, is leveled by the far left. They are accusing the more moderate revolutionaries around Friedrich Ebert, the uh, leader of the uh, majority social democrats, of betraying uh, a proper revolution in Germany, a proper social revolution, by collaborating with more moderate uh, liberals, but also with uh, the Freikorps to put down uh, far-left insurgents.
0: So let's look at the revolution itself. Can you just give us a broad overview of the events of how it unfolded in 1918? Yes, I mean, my book actually starts in
1: in 1917 for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's an important uh, year, of course, in the history of the First World War because of the uh, American entry into the war, but also because of the Russian Revolution. Both kind of raise expectations, uh, Some historians even speak of a revolution of expectation. Uh, On the far left, uh, you've got certain groups that are hoping that the revolution would spread uh, to Central Europe, um, which of course is is central to Marxist beliefs that Germany and potentially uh, Britain would also experience a revolution. Others sort of uh, believe in uh, Woodrow Wilson as a um, world leader who would bring uh, democracy uh, to Europe. At the same time, you also have kind of raising expectations. Uh, in the nationalist camp Germany uh, because, of course, in early 1918, um, Russia is knocked out of the war after the revolution. Uh, Lenin makes the very pragmatic decision to save the revolution and, of course, to end uh, the war, which is something that the Bolsheviks had always promised. So from the perspective of German nationalists, it is now much more likely that Germany is going to win that, raising expectations uh, within uh, the German nationalist-minded middle classes and elites. And now now, just a few months later, then, you have that situation where Germany is clearly not winning the war, but is actually losing that conflict. And uh, in that situation, the German Revolution uh, is triggered by war wariness in the same way that the Russian Revolution initially uh, begins with war wariness and uh, and uh, starvation and food shortages. The actual events that lead to the wider revolution uh, is a sailors' revolt in uh, Kiel and Wilhelmshaven, two important uh, port cities that are home to the German. Imperial High Seas Fleet uh, during the First World War. So essentially the German admirals are deciding that uh, the Imperial High Seas Fleet should be sent out for a last uh, battle with the Royal Navy and many of the sailors are um, hesitant to follow orders. In fact, they refuse to uh, follow these orders and so the German Revolution really begins uh, with that uh, naval revolt which very quickly spreads first along the coast in Germany Germany, the Baltic coast and uh, the North Sea coast, and then moves inland. And what is quite um, unique about the German revolution is that uh, the revolution spreads inland, but it doesn't reach the capital until the 9th of November. So most revolutions tend to start in the capital, which is also uh, the center of political power, whereas here uh, you have a revolution that basically captures the various uh, German states first before then uh, eventually arriving on the 9th of November in uh, Germany. And it is worth bearing in mind that the Kaiser Wilhelm II had, up until that point, uh, refused to give in to some one of the key demands of the revolutionaries, namely to abdicate, thereby kind of radicalizing revolution. Because the revolution initially starts as a revolt to end the war as quickly as possible. And then, uh, with the uh, Kaiser uh, refusing to give in to uh, some of the demands of the revolutionaries, the, the demands become more radical. So eventually then on the 9th of November, the Republic is proclaimed and uh, the German Chancellor, without waiting for the Kaiser's uh, approval, um, publicly declares that he had abdicates and then Wilhelm the second uh, flees, uh, into exile in the Netherlands and uh,
0: basically then spends the rest of his life in, in exile. So you've, you've touched on the causes of the revolution. But what sort of role did Germany's uh, military situation towards uh, no the end of... Of October and November 1918 play in the in the actual outbreak and revolution and subsequent course?
1: Well, the two, the defeat and the revolution, are of course closely connected, although not in the way uh, that is suggested in that nationalist step in the back legend, which always suggested that the revolution had caused the, uh, certain groups within Germany, uh, notably the far left, but also uh, minorities such as Jews, uh, had collaborated to bring about the downfall of the imperial system. Um, but really it was the other way around. Um, imminent defeat and war wariness in Germany uh, caused the revolution. Um, so there is a causality just not in the way that uh, German nationalists in the interwar uh, period had always uh, suggested. Um, so I think it is important to uh, emphasize that it's that way around. It's the imminent defeat that um, spurs revolution. And of course the fact that the war at this point uh, had been going on for four years and there is war wariness of course in all uh, combatant societies except maybe for a while that had just entered the conflict, like the United States, uh, where, you know, large numbers of American soldiers were only just starting to arrive in significant numbers in
0: in Europe at that point. So who, who exactly were the revolutionaries in the revolution and what did they want to achieve? yeah when we think about the the german revolutionaries uh, it's
1: important to emphasize that this is uh, not a homogenous there are different camps within the revolutionary movement uh, there is the far left uh, communists and independent social democrats who had been against the war uh, since 1914 and uh, maintained that opposition to war throughout um there are of course people like Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg who are probably the most uh, well-known representatives or leaders of uh, the independent uh, social Democrats of the far left. Uh, And then there is the much larger uh, social democratic camp, uh, which is led by Friedrich Ebert, uh, who is much more of a reluctant uh, revolution. So what happens already before the First World War is that there is a major debate within the social democratic movement on how to achieve uh, social and political change. And some of the more moderate social democrats emphasize that they prefer evolution through reforms to revolution. And they argue that at this point, uh, Germany, which of course, economic powerhouse in, in Europe was too complex a society to achieve a, a classic Marxist uh, revolution that uh, Germany had already achieved quite a lot, because here Germany, while it's not a democracy, is a uh, country where uh, workers have quite significant rights. Uh, what these more moderate social democrats would argue is that workers in Germany like, say, in Tsarist Russia uh, have far more to lose through a revolution than just their chains and that this process of political evolution through reforms should be continued. So there are strong tensions within the revolutionary movement uh, in Germany, and it is really started by the independent socialists and the people further to the left. Uh, And so the social democrats, the majority social democrats under Ebert, are put in this slightly awkward uh, position that they they don't actually advocate revolution, but now all of a sudden they find themselves in a revolutionary uh, situation, and they are very keen to... um, dominate that revolutionary, control that revolutionary movement, and they succeed in doing so, which is why um, you don't end up in Germany with a situation that is similar to, to Russia. Um, Ebert uh, and other majority social democrats are actually against a um, councils republic, a form of direct uh, democracy that would be governed by social uh, soldiers and workers' councils. Um, but Ebert is uh, insisting that an elected constituent assembly should decide on the future form of state in Germany and not the soldiers and workers' councils that are
0: uh, the preferred option um, by the far left. So why does liberal democracy triumph in Germany as opposed to another outcome such as a socialist revolution? Well it has a lot to do
1: with precisely Ebert's insistence that uh, there should be a national election for a constituent assembly and essentially um, the outcome of that election which takes place in January 1919 is that the three parties most closely associated with with and most strongly in favour of liberal democracy, uh, the majority social democrats, the uh, liberal uh, liberals, and the Catholic centre party, uh, they emerge uh, as the strongest political parties by far uh, in the uh, constituent assembly. And they work together very closely and uh, draw up a uh, liberal constitution, um, which is actually the preferred option um, when you look at the outcome of the of the January nineteen nineteen uh, elections. That's uh, the solution that most Germans uh, preferred at that time for a variety of reasons.
0: And so what what challenges did the new Weimar Republic face um, once the elections were complete?
1: Well, the challenges that the Weimar Republic faced were obviously enormous, ranging from uh, the legacies of of a lost war. Germany had just uh, lost the uh, biggest military uh, conflict in history up until that point. Um, There were practical uh, challenges uh, ranging from the demobilization of uh, millions of uh, soldiers were of course at this point uh, all still in the field um, when the war ended, uh, there were no enemy soldiers on uh, German soil and the German soldiers were still uh, spread all over uh, Europe. Um, there were the challenges that many uh, civil servants conservative civil servants did not sympathize with democracy uh, there was the, the challenge that uh, was posed by the Versailles Peace Treaty, um, there was also uh, radical opposition from the far left and from the far right uh, Um, So the challenges are enormous. And what is more surprising in some ways is that the uh, republic lasted until 1933 um, and that it didn't collapse sooner, because I would argue that relatively few uh, Western democracies in modern history have faced a similar set of uh, challenges as the Weimar Republic.
0: And my penultimate question is, what do you think the legacy of the 1918 revolution is? Well, curiously,
1: 1918 is not a date that features prominently uh, in the festive calendar of German Democrats. I would argue that it should be. Uh, It is, after all, the birth date of German democracies. And we kind of tend to think of the Weimar Republic primarily in terms of failure. Yes, it is a a reminder that uh, democracies can fail, that people in a democracy can decide that they no longer uh, want to live in a democracy and vote for parties that want to abolish it, as was the case after the onset of the Great Depression in 1929. However, I would argue that Weimar uh, is also a prime example of a resilient democracy that survived, as I just said, more challenged than any other Western democracy I can think of right now. There are you know, putches, there's hyperinflation, there are the legacies of a lost war, there are enemies on the far right and uh, the far left. But despite all of that, it is worth remembering that in 1928, so the year before the Great Depression kicks in, uh, the republic seemed more stable than ever before. Uh, this is the year of another uh, national election in Germany, and the Social Democrats, who are most closely associated with the Weimar Republic and uh, are strongly in favour, of uh, the Republic. Um, that's the year when they returned to government with a significant election victory. And uh, Hermann Müller, the newly re-elected chancellor, uh, published a book that year reflecting on the 1918 revolution in the year of the 10th anniversary. And the tenor of the book was uh, we did it. We succeeded. Democracy succeeded against all odds uh, in Germany. And then, just a year later, the Republic is facing uh, the biggest economic crisis in modern history and uh, we know how that all ended.
0: And for- you, Robert, where can people learn more about your work? Well, the, uh, obviously, there is my
1: my own uh, website on School of uh, History, University College Dublin, um, general website where you can uh, find out more about my research interests and my publications to date. And uh, with respect to uh, this particular book, November 1918, um, obviously, you can find it on Amazon. And uh, depending on where you are, uh, the bookshops may be uh, open again, and uh, it should be in, in your local bookshop
0: as well. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman,